Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcast. I'm Matt Robeson, joined by my co-host, former two-term U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. Late last week, a blockbuster report from Jonathan Swan of Axios detailed how former President Trump's top allies are preparing a plan to purge the federal government of thousands of key decision makers and replace them with MAGA loyalists through an executive order called Schedule F. The report shows that even beyond the typical Republican fixations like the Environmental Protection Agency and the Internal Revenue Service, the Trump shadow team is targeting the Justice Department, FBI, intelligence, and the State Department and the Pentagon. The plans have become detailed and highly specific down to which individual people are deemed not loyal enough by Trump to stay. The upshot is that if Donald Trump is reelected, there would no longer be any guardrail between the American people and his whims once the core of the federal service is replaced with a new army of rabid MAGA foot soldiers. The congressman who has been leading the fight against this threat is Jerry Connolly, Democrat of Virginia, who chairs the subcommittee that oversees the federal civil service. He successfully passed an amendment in the House of Representatives to this year's defense bill to prevent any future president from executing the Schedule F maneuver, but Republicans hope to block it in the Senate. We are very privileged to have Congressman Connolly here with us to tell us all about it. Congressman, welcome to Beyond Politics. Great to be with you, Matt. Thank you. Well, it's our honor to have you, and we want to start by just expressing our appreciation for you leading the fight on this critical issue. I gave my version, my description of the problem, some of it taken from Jonathan Swan at Axios, hat tip, major hat tip to him for his investigative reporting on this. Maybe you can just explain at a high level to our listeners and our viewers on video why this Schedule F executive order and the new Trump team plans to bring it back are so bad and have you so concerned. For the past 140 years, the United States has abided by a principle that we need a professional cadre of civil servants that, that yeah, there's going to be a, a layer of politically appointed managers who reflect the will of the people in electing a president, but we don't want to politicize the 2.1 million civil servants who every day make things happen on behalf of the American people. Whether you get your social security check ought not to be a matter of partisanship. Whether you get your veterans benefits or get treated a VA hospital or you get your tax refund shouldn't be a matter of a pol partisan political appointee looking at who you are and who you were. And that's been a core principle, frankly, since the assassination of, of, of James Garfield who was assassinated in 1881 by a would-be partisan political office seeker who was disappointed not getting that partisan appointment. So two years later, the congressman passed, Congress passed the Pendleton Act that essentially the civil service, and we expanded it to protect almost all of the civil service over the years. And, and, and that has served us well. That has really served us well. And as you explained it correctly, I think that what, what Trump and his cohorts are up to is if they get a second bite at the apple in the White House, they are going to go after what they refer to as the deep state, what you and I would call the civil service, and basically purge it and replace it with political hacks, cronies, people not necessarily qualified for the jobs, but who would reflect 
the political ideology of Donald Trump. And that is a terrifying coup of its own, really, and has to be seen in the context of his other activities in in trying to thwart election results, suppress voting ability, overturn actual certified election results state by state, subvert honest men and women who are doing their jobs, whether they be secretaries of state or electoral board members. And now he wants to go systematically after the civil service. And as you point out, it, it, it's, it goes right down to a very granular level where he actually has a hit list by name, apparently, of people in agency after agency who are targeted, who are not considered sufficiently loyal. So, Congressman, not to not not to make light of this, but that sounds like really modus op standard operating procedure for the Trump White House, given uh, what we know about how they operated internally in 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 the White House, as well as as now what they sought to sought to do or or want to do if if Trump ever was to be reelected. But apparently, the Trump White House and its allies, starting in around. 2018 assembled detailed lists of disloyal government officials to oust and 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 quote trusted pro-Trump people to replace them. Now we've also seen some reporting that apparently Ginny Thomas, who shows up at the center of, well, it seems like every lunatic right-wing fringe plot, personally handed a purge list to Donald Trump in 2019. Can can you shed any light on that goes? What do we know and what am I making up? I can't confirm that. I don't know that. But I, I think it's fair to speculate that that would be in keeping with the entire modus operandi of the Trump White House and the uh, sycophants he drew around him. Look, if Giuliani and, and, and Powell can go around the country flat out lying as officers of the court, their lawyers, about election results and about what options were available to election officials to overturn them. Why would we think it's outlandish to believe that uh, this individual or others prepared essentially hit lists of insufficiently loyal public servants who need to be purged? And, and that's, what, that's what dictators do. That that is not what we do in a democracy. In fact, quite the opposite. We protect the professional cadre of civil servants. We insulate them from the normal whoop and woof of partisan politics, just like Great Britain does, Canada does, we do. That's the mark, hallmark of a mature democracy that wants to make sure that we have a professional core of civil servants who serve the American people. And this plan, in its scope, what Jonathan Swan has written about, he he took what he tried to do in October of 2020, and they are are now crystallizing it, expanding it, and actually making it fairly systemic. That is terrifying. And that would completely subvert the current civil service we have and would, I think, essentially overturn the Pendleton Act and subsequent civil service legislation to protect against partisan political activity within that court. I was hoping to break down the practical implications of this move, if it were ever followed through on in a second Trump term, 
And to me, the way I think about it is that there are two concerns here. One is that the civil service does act as a bit of a circuit breaker on any truly crazy stuff that could be coming from a Trump White House. That's a function they haven't really had to perform in prior White Houses, but they definitely did have to perform that function in the first Trump term. They're supposed to be nonpartisan. They are they're sworn to follow the law and the Constitution. So if a president directs them to do some crazy stuff politically for partisan purposes, they are there in part to hem that in and to follow the letter of the law. We we saw that. We saw that there was that there were mid-level staffers who who put the brakes on some of the insane whims of Donald Trump's brain. So that's problem number one. The other problem is that with congressional dysfunction, a lot of the policy and the implementation of policy that happens at the federal level is going through the federal agencies. It's it's not going as much through legislation in Congress the, the way it's kind of supposed to. So the upshot, if this plan were to go into effect, is that instead of just one lawless maniac at the top of the government, you can have thousands of little Trump mini-me's running around the federal civil service and doing their best to make everything as magified as possible. So the question is, do you see that kind of delineation of the two problems here the same way, or, or do you see it a different way? And do you have any examples that you use in trying to explain this to other people of what, what the practical bad effects of this could be? I mean, you mentioned Social Security and veterans benefits, for example, a moment ago. Is, is that the kind of example? That you sure. Use? I mean, what if you politicize civil service protected jobs at, let's take Social Security, IRS, Veterans Administration. What is what the next step is? We're going to have a list of preferred beneficiaries. So you're not on that list, Matt, because you're a woke liberal Democrat. And we're going to we're going to get good old mega red blooded conservatives, and they're going to go to the top of the list in terms of getting their benefits or getting preferred treatment in hospitalization if it's the VA or their tax refund. In fact, you may never see your tax refund ever because we get the slows when we have a flagged woke constituent on our list. The policymaker, we have a professional, for example, at the State Department, which you mentioned as one of the targeted agencies, we have a professional foreign service. It, it, it is not partisan. They're not supposed to engage while they're in active service in partisan activities. They are the professional core of the State Department to make sure U.S. interests are protected, irrespective of who's in the White House, not to thwart the president, but to make sure there's a continuity reflected in U.S. foreign policy in the day-to-day operations of that foreign policy. And if, imagine if essentially we supplant that system with, no, everybody who's going to have any role in an embassy or a consulate or in the State Department itself, no, they're going to reflect mega and mega values. And, and we're going to replace anyone who doesn't. We, we, we lose all objectivity. We lose all continuity. And we have now, I think, lost the confidence of our allies in our own foreign service and its ability to execute and lead, whether it be a war in Ukraine or getting food 
stuffs to Africa or dealing with a pandemic. We're going to replace people at FDA and CDC and AID, the Center for Disease Control, Food and Drug Administration, the Agency for International Development, with ideologues who don't believe in masks, don't believe in isolation, don't believe in vaccination. What could go wrong with that in the middle of a pandemic when the United States is supposed to be leading in getting people vaccinated and getting medical equipment to especially poorer countries who don't have the wherewithal to fight back against the virus and try to lessen its severity and protect their people. There's no end of imagining what could go wrong with this kind of system when we prof- we replace professionals, scientists, technologists, lawyers with ideologues and partisan hacks. So, Jerry, let me turn our attention for a moment to the workings inside the great institution of the U.S. House. Originally, Trump issued the executive order late in his term, October 2020. So it was more of a preview of what he might do in his second term than something he actually got to implement. And we know that President Biden rescinded the order. I'm curious, why did you stay so focused on this? And and recalling from my time how sometimes congressional attention can focus on a shiny penny, do other congressional leaders get it when it comes to how serious this is? It's a great question, Paul. I, I guess I've spent my 14 years in Congress focusing on sort of real nuts and bolts issues that make government work, whether it's modernizing our IT in the federal government, not a sexy headline grabbing subject. But if you think about it, IT is the undergirding platform for everything we do. All our great policy ideas, all of the wonderful legislation we passed during COVID, almost $6 trillion of fairly forward-looking legislation and relief, all of it, however, predicated on IT working, getting loans to small businesses in a massive way, getting checks to every family in America, providing daycare, suspending student loan repayments, on and on, all of it at a massive scale, which saved the economy, which was going under. (coughs) But uh, we did find flaws in the IT. And so trying to modernize that IT so that we can execute policies that really matter, very important but not a sexy subject. And to your point, Paul, persuading my colleagues in Congress to take it seriously has been an uphill battle. We have we created a technology modernization fund to try to modernize that IT and incentivize people to retire legacy systems that go back 30, 40, 50 years in some cases. And that was zeroed out by the US Senate. President Biden had wanted $8 billion to do that with a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. And zeroed it out. And we had to fight like heck to get a billion restored. Very short-sighted kind of mentality. Like, what's that got to do with COVID? And I think, well, it's got everything to do with COVID. If you if you want to provide this relief, sure. you're going to have modern IT systems that can A- do it. It's academic. That's right. So likewise, this. This seems like one of those obscure, technical kinds of things. We already have five exemptions, five schedules. They're very limited, by the way. One of them, of course, is the senior executive service. But we do allow for an exception for political appointees when a new president comes in, but they're limited. They're very limited. They're in the thousands, not the tens and hundreds of thousands. And when I saw schedule, I I responded immediately because I I saw what it 
would do. And remember, he issued it by executive order. So it was being implemented, but he ran out of time because of the election and then his focus on the coup and losing that, the inauguration of a new president who we did succeed in getting their attention, made it a high priority to rescind that executive order first thing. But there's nothing to prevent a subsequent president or round two of, God forbid, Donald Trump from not only revisiting this issue by executive order, but frankly, as Jonathan Juan has documented, expanding on it in a big way. So I've introduced legislation that would, and and we got it passed in the defense authorization bill as an amendment. So it's awaiting, excuse me, consideration by the Senate, but it would freeze the existing five exceptions. So no more exceptions, can't create a new schedule F or G or anything else. And, And effectively, you'll have to come to Congress and get Congress to hear the merits of a case and say yay or nay. And that way we we essentially nullify or, or, or check the president's ability to, to do it by executive order. And my hope is that our colleagues in the Senate will see the threat for what it is. <clears throat> I did have some Republican support here in the House, and I hope they don't just define it as this is just another anti-Trump thing. No, this is this is protecting the civil service. And it is reasserting the role of Congress, because in my view, putting aside for a minute all the damage a Schedule F or something like it does and would do, at some point, Congress has to reassert its role here. We are a separate but co-equal branch of government, and no president ought to have, by fiat, the ability to completely carve out a massive exception to civil service, civil service protections, and essentially undermine the whole purpose of legislation that's been on the books for 140 years. I think you ought to come to Congress before you get to do that. I just want to editorialize for a second that I'm a passionate incrementalist. I believe the change happens not in big, bold strokes, but in continued application of hard effort and work by people who are not celebrated doing things that are not sexy. This is well documented in Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk. That Those are the kinds of people doing the kinds of things that really matter to the lives of Americans that are in these federal agencies that Donald Trump is and his team are targeting through this Schedule F maneuver. And I just want to applaud you for doing that kind of work on the congressional end. It's not sexy. But to your point about IT, it came to light well, at this point a couple of decades ago that the Bureau of Indian Affairs couldn't even get Native Americans their just compensation for lands that they owned because the records of ownership had been destroyed by accumulation of bat guano because they were being held in paper in warehouses. Yeah. That's the kind of that's the kind of thing if you care about justice, if you care about change, that you should really care about the nuts and bolts of how our federal government works. That's what we're trying to fix and and prevent disaster occurring to. So thank you for focusing on that because it really, really matters. Now, now that I've editorialized for a moment, Paul, I'm actually just going to turn right back over to you because you had been planning to ask Congressman Connolly a question that I think just springboards right off of what he was just saying about getting some House Republican support for his amendment. But maybe we're not sure what's going to happen in the Senate. Apparently, Senate Republicans are trying to block your maneuver to to undo this whole Trump plot. Paul, you were going to ask about that. I think you should go right to that question. So 
So picking up on Matt's incredibly astute lead, for years we've been told behind the scenes there are plenty of Senate Republicans who know how crazy Trump is, don't want him getting back in office and are glad that there are a few, that there were a few responsible adults around to restrain him last time. So why are are the Senate Republicans trying to block your amendment? Why do they want to pave the way for him having this incredible amount of power with with no protections? How how would this somewhat discreet issue impact their reelections or their fundraising? It seems like they ought to be able to see the long term implications that you've just pointed out to us about protecting the professional civil service. Well, Paul, it's hard for me to get into the mind of some of our colleagues in the Senate and, and indeed here in the House. That's a good thing, by the way, because if, <laughs> if you right. could, I'd be worried about Exactly. It. It's not a capacity I really am seeking. But some of them have drunk the Kool-Aid and they believe or profess to believe the nonsense about you know, the federal workforce is tantamount to a deep state that is thwarting the political will of the American people when it elects Donald Trump president. And I have colleagues on my subcommittee who actually, you know, mouth that. They say that as if every federal employee were somehow secretly consorting to derail an administration's agenda after they get elected or even before they get elected. And that's simply false. But that's their narrative. So some of them are in that category. There are others, as you suggest, Paul, who know better, but who are cowards. They're just simply cowards. They, they're afraid of their own base. They're afraid to do anything or say anything that could even remotely be inferred as critical of Trump and everything he represents for fear of political retribution in the next primary. And and then and then there's, I guess, a very small and shrinking crowd in the Senate and here in the House who actually privately take their own counsel and pick and choose their fights. Now, my hope is that this issue is not defined as an anti-Trump measure. This is an issue. What Trump did was to highlight a, a vulnerability in the existing system and legislation we need to fix. And it, forget what president. It could be Joe Biden. It could be President Kamala Harris, it could be some somebody in the future who decides he or she knows better and they're going to put their imprint in a whole new approach to civil service without any input from Congress. I just think that uh, that's not respectful of the separation of powers. It's not it's not respectful of the fact we have three branches, not one in the Constitution of the United States. And the legislative branch has to assert its role in the creation of a new schedule for that civil service, especially one that that effectively undermines the civil service itself. I I just I'm crazy about that, but I just think we ought to have a say in it. I don't and think I'm it's so crazy. Yeah, I don't, no, no. I, 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 I think you're passionate about the right kind of thing. And we really appreciate your focus on this because it is really critical from my time in Congress. It really resonates with me when you talk about, well, this may not be the sexiest issue, but it's a really, really critical issue for the long term functioning of our government in the way that the people expect our government to function. We expect our civil service to function in a 
nonpartisan way that serves the people. That's why they're there from administration to administration. It's why they're professionals. It's because it's not politicized. And we've seen what happens when, for example, the judiciary gets overly politicized. Right. We've just we've just been through that. And we're going to be living with that on the Supreme Court for a long time. God, yeah. God save us from the same thing happening to our civil service. Yeah, you're exactly right. In fact, we're, you're right about the judiciary. That's a good example. We already now want to know when a judge issues an opinion. Let's let's look at the appellate level or the district court level. Who appointed him or her? We never did that before. Right. But now we want to know because we are assuming by asking that question, of course, it's political. Right. Well, now, so we're already eroding confidence in the judicial branch and in, frankly, the opinions handed down by judge based on who appointed them to the, to the bench in the first place. Right. And and we ought not to have that same problem with our civil service. So maybe my I, I go back to my example, maybe my veterans benefits are being held up because somebody looked up my political affiliation. Well, maybe this is a good note to end on, because I, I'd like to make a pitch and, and, and have you make a pitch to maybe some of the Republican office holders, maybe people with more of a libertarian bent, a social libertarian bent about why your amendment, why your legislation is so important, why they should care about it. To me, everything I've just heard suggests that the process that's going on in the Trump team right now is basically they're going on social media. They're looking at Matt Robeson. They're saying, well, this guy looks like he's the chairman of gay witches for abortion or something. And we don't want him in the federal service. And they're blacklisting people like me. I'm not that woke, by the way, but whatever. And on the other end of it, they're working up a MAGA replacement list, which is built entirely around loyalty and a politicized view of the role of government. This is exactly the type of deep state scenario that they profess to be against. Yes. Do you do you buy my case? Would you I like, to, I, would you I, like I, to make my case that this I, is the very reason they should be against this? I agree. Think I'll give you a different example. My very first election, one of the central issues was about banning books and school libraries. And I, I was running and I said, ironically, to a mixed audience politically, I said, oh, no, no, no I favor it. I want the power to ban all that Rush Limbaugh trash in our libraries. And even the conservatives kind of went, whoa. It, so if I create this power, someday people of the other persuasion will have that power and exercise it. And I don't know that I want to do that. <clears throat> so this is about, <clears throat> as you said, there's irony here in the very thing they don't want to do they're creating. But, but longer term, I guess, going to your original question, for that shrinking number of people open to protecting the government and protecting our system of, of government, I, I would appeal to them about protecting the integrity of the civil service. We're much better served in having a nonpartisan, non-politicized civil service serving the American people, irrespective of your politics as a potential beneficiary or recipient of government service. And to, to revert to the spoil system that existed Prior to 1883, I think it's fraught with huge problems, especially in the 21st century. 
Well, Congressman, on behalf of Paul and, and myself, we really do want to thank you, not just for joining us and, and making some time in your incredibly busy schedule today to be with us, but for what you're doing in focusing on this issue. This show is called Beyond Politics because mm-hmm. we don't want to get caught up in the day-to-day partisan politics that's consumed our country. We care in a deep way about our government and our system of government. And so do you. And what you're doing is incredibly important for preserving it. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. And let me just say to my friend, Paul, we miss you here in Congress.